Drink and Read presents War and Peace, Volume 3, Part 1, Chapters 9 to 23. Convince Russian Napoleon's the Antichrist. Each morning I get up, I set the cabal. Can barely stand on my feet. I'm not okay, not alright. I'm obsessed with numerology. That French demons made Russia a prison cell. Don't you all long to be free? Oh, somebody. Can somebody. Can anybody help me? Kill Napoleon. I drink hard. Every day of my life, I drink till it aches my bones. At the end, at the end of the day, I go home to my unfaithful wife all on my own. I'm not young, I need to practice Freemasonry till blood tears run down from my eyes. Lord, somebody, oh somebody, can anybody help me kill Napoleon? Hello, I'm Jonathan Kwiatkowski, and we're about to read some good shit. Welcome back to Drink and Read, a War and Peace recap podcast. Hello there, nice to see you. Been a while, huh? Halfway through plus of War and Peace. And it doesn't stop. That opening is devoted to one of Pierre's latest greatest obsessions, which we'll get to at the tail end of this episode, but, um, let's just say he's convinced a certain short French general is the Antichrist. Yep, bet you didn't see that coming. For a little recap of what happened last time we were reading together, Natasha had just broken her engagement with Andre. Andre had tried to hunt down Anatole for revenge, Mary, him, and his father did not leave on the best terms, and the world, or at least this Russian world, is being thrust once again into war, as Napoleon has invaded the country against Emperor Alexander's wishes, and things aren't looking peachy keen for our main characters, as war, yet again, is on an onset. Going forward in this novel, instead of sticking with one character for a long set of chapters or section, we're going to be jumping jumping around with a bit more frequency. So strap in. Um, Of course, this is Drink and Read. I have to get into my two sections, the first of which being the appendices. And as I said for the past few episodes, that's the general part of the novel that I know the best to my own abilities. So I don't think I made any glaring mistakes I'm sure I swapped some names and mispronounced some. I do hope you did take my recommendation of listening to Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, one of the many cast recordings. You can research it online. I think that it is the pinnacle of musical theater, and it goes hand-in-hand, especially with this Pivier edition of War and Peace that we are reading. 
as to what we're drinking, thus the name Drink and Read. Today I'm doing a classic. I'm in the mood, it's Monday, I'm feeling down, so you know it'll pick up my spirits, some red, red wine. I don't know if I've stated this on this podcast with some frequency, but I try to stay away from the red wine. It's a little rich for me, and um, if I drink an exorbitant amount of it, I end up like Pierre, except I don't have a cabal to set. That's a warm peace joke. We'll get there. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's funny in some circles. Oh, I apologize. And of course, if you like that sort of humor, remember to check out my other podcasts, Nightcaps at the Theater, and Anime Was Not a Mistake that I'll bring up in the tail end while rating, reviewing, and subscribing to this one. It really helps out if you leave a five-star review, especially on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts. That does something with the algorithm that makes it so happy. I don't know. I didn't go to school for that. I went to school for drinking and reading. With all the business out of the way, let's start shuffling off to Buffalo and resume Volume 3, Part 1 of War and Peace. Chapter 9, as we have learned in the previous episode, Andre has switched from working under one General Kutuzov to another General Detali. Or should I say Barclay Detali, and old Barclay doesn't know what to do with Andre. Andre is just spending his time looking and seeing how things are run. He realizes that Anatole isn't there and he's in Petersburg. Good for him because he was about to knock Anatole's block off anyway. And that no one really understands what's going on. The army is under the care of three separate generals, being that Emperor Alexander is still off the map doing whatever he's doing somewhere else, and Andre sees that these uh, soldiers are further classified into many different groups because now the court, uh, the rich people are now invested into the army and ready to fight for on Russia's behalf, but it's not going to go well. And thank God for Schmoop breaking down these groups because there's nine or so different groups. The first are people that believe that war is a science and these are the strategists. They have an idea set in their head and they want to retreat further back into Russia. Sounds like a good plan to me and kind of have the French come to them. This group is led by a general by the name of Pifuel. The second group, which has Bagration, who's a name I recognize, just goes the opposite against this first group and says that they want to attack the French head-on. They do not want to retreat. They want to meet them in Poland and duke it out there. Group three is made up of the court ass-kissers who will say no bad about Emperor Alexander and just are neutral a la Switzerland in this scenario. They don't want to rock the boat, and they don't know enough about military warfare in order to rock said boat, so they're just going to do whatever Emperor Alexander wants them to do. Group 4 are the scaredy-cat pragmatist, and they're all afraid that Napoleon is going to kill them all, so they must broker a peace deal in order for this war to be put to an end before anyone dies. And this is probably the camp where I belong at, because I'm scared of everything. Group 5 want uh, Barclay de Tale, Andre's new general, to be in charge of the whole shebang, not because he has the reasoning or the know-how, but because he's a kinda good guy, so I guess that gives him all the military power that he's capable of, huh? Yeah. Okay. Group 6 want this guy Benningson to be in charge of the entire shebang, even though he suffered a major defeat in the past, he is a general, he is experienced, he should be put in charge of this. Group 7 is the Emperor Alexander fan club, who also want him to be commander-in-chief on the battlefield because he'll inspire the Russian people, and these are the delusional, I would call them. You can bet that Nikolai would probably be in that group. 
Group 8, Andre surmises, are the most populous group, and these are the hedonists who just want to do whatever suits their benefits. So if it involves them shaking hands with Emperor Alexander, or leading a charge, or getting smeared in chocolate ice cream because that's their thing, that's what they're going to want to kind of, you know, fight for. These people all just want to be favorited for no other reason, and that's their main pursuit. And then, just as Andre shows up on the scene, a ninth group emerges, a final group composed of uh, stately statesmen, and Andre surmises that these guys kind of know what's what, they do not want Emperor Alexander to be involved in the battlefield in any way, and they kind of just want to rely on typical warfare in order to win. So their main goal, get Emperor Alexander out of there, don't have him anywhere near a cannonball so he's not destroyed. So they suggest to him through a written letter, Dear Emperor Alexander, can you please go on a peacemaking tour around the country in order to boost morale and, you know, get your face out there while at the same time staying directly out of the way of a cannonball. Chapter 10, this letter isn't even cold in Emperor Alexander's hand, and he's about to go off, and he invites Andre, of all people, to dinner to get his opinion on the situation. And Andre gets there and expects to walk into a war council, and he just sees all these men from different walks of life, like scholars and rich people, socialites, a few generals, and nothing or no one present to sort of band together for one core goal. All these people seem to be there just to answer Emperor Alexander's questions. And we know how stupid those could be, like, what day was the battle fought? How was the weather? And things that he shouldn't be asking about in the first place. So Andre sees this as sort of a lost cause and questions why he's here in the first place. Pifuel is pissed and he's going off in German on why is he even there? He doesn't want to defend his ideas because he knows they're right, because he backs them in science and research, and everyone else's idea is stupid, so he strikes up a conversation with Andre, and Andre kind of sees where this dude is coming from, but it's just stupid that Emperor Alexander has all these um, great minds here and he's not utilizing them to the best of the ability. It's not going to go and reflect well for how they're going to handle this invasion from France. Chapter 11, Andre is invited to sit in to a non-council meeting. He seems to be working his way up through the court instead of the uh, army in a new job search thing going on. But Andre is there, and it's another mess. It's just these same men in the same room, yelling over one another, trying to give their two cents, and they're only out for themselves, and everyone is scared of Napoleon. It's not a very good meeting. Emperor Alexander is just sitting in a chair, leaning his head to the left, to the right, listening to Italians, Germans speak to him, and he's just like, this conversation bores me, I really don't have time for this, and clearly wants it to be over, and all these men just want to stand up and shout their peace at one another. This Italian named Paolucci is there, and he only speaks French, and some people only tr speak German, and they're trying to translate the ideas to one another, and it doesn't really come across that well because everyone's screaming, except for Pifuel, who's there and just giving these sarcastic, catty comments to the side that Andre hears, and Andre seemingly respects him the most of all because he knows what he's doing, but his voice is unheard because he's not in this for himself, but for the betterment and the safety of these Russian people. Pifuel is finally asked his thoughts, and he sarcastically goes detail by detail on his plans, and Andre is just in the corner rolling his eyes in camaraderie with Pifuel. And while this is all going on, Andre is just sitting back going, what 
kind of shit show did I sign up for? This army is a mess, it's chaotic, everyone's just screaming at one another, no one really knows what they're doing, and the best general we have, Bagration, is just a fool because he's so courageous and set in his own ways that he's gonna do whatever the hell he wants anyway. Oh boy, this is a bunch of jokers. And Andre is just dwelling on his time apart from the military where he's loved and lost and comments on it as follows. God forbid he should be a human being and come to love or pity someone or start thinking about what is just and what isn't. Understandably, the theory of genius was cut to fit them of old because they are power. The merit of success in military affairs does not depend on them, but on the man in the ranks who shouts, we're lost, or shouts, hurrah. And it is only in the ranks that one can serve with the assurance of being useful. Translation, it's not about how much you care or love or respect your fellow man, it's about who's the loudest and who can get the job done. Then the chapter ends very matter-of-factly. The sovereign, Emperor Alexander, asks Andre, where would you like to serve? And Andre takes one look around the court and says, not with these jugheads, put me in the army, please. And with that, his career change is over. He's back, back, back again to the army. Chapter 12, let's check on our boy Nikolai, who receives a letter from his parents detailing how uh, Natasha fell ill with that suicide attempt and her engagement is often that he should come home and check on his sister. But he doesn't want to return home just yet because the war is just about to start and that's what he's there for. Of course, he's not going to have another existential moment where he almost dies, right? Nikolai's got a specific list of priorities, and of course, instead of responding directly to his family, he writes a letter to Sonia going, My beloved friend, I'll return home soon and then I'll marry you and life will be perfect. In the letter to Sonia, he details how if it were his decision, he would run home and marry her on the spot, but since he is a man of honor, he must defend his country, and for now, wait, my dear beloved. Nikolai has moved up the ranks, and now he is a captain. He's recalling all of this uh, drunken tomfoolery that he was seeing when passing through one camp, where some soldiers had claimed some horses, lands, and alcohol from some Polish people, and he was reprimanding them. He passes through a similar camp. And with his added responsibility and power in the military, he does get an Anjukant. So this is the same thing that Nikolai was before, and kind of what Andre was when they first started out. And this boy's name is Ilian, and Ilian is obsessed with Nikolai, as young boys often do. They look to older boys, and they're like, oh, I'm gonna be just as cool as him when I grow up. But maybe he's not the best role model for you, Ilian. During this one night around the campfire, a dude by the name of Zerdzinski is detailing his war exploits and Nikolai is rolling his eyes because he knows these are all fibs and exaggerations and he turns to Ilian and is like, we need to get out of here. Do you know any place? Ilian says, I know just the one. There's a tavern over there where the regiment doctor is hanging out with his pretty German wife. Why don't we go see what's cooking in the tavern? Nikolai says this is a plan and off the pair go. Chapter 13, this is a little odd, zany chapter where the wife of the doctor, another Maria, Maria Gurinikovna, is there serving drinks and making merry with other officers that are chilling out in the tavern, and Nikolai and Ilian show up. Maria is very pretty, and all the officers are making advances on her, despite her husband, the doctor, sleeping peacefully, or at least that's what she says, in the next room over. 
there's more of that patented soldier chauvinism as they're proceeding to make innuendos about what they would do to Maria if she were their wives and she's a pretty girl to look at. I wonder what else is pretty on her. It doesn't come across in the best light. They're mixing rum with sugar, which, oh my gosh, as a person who doesn't like sweet drinks, that just turns my stomach right there. And rum is dangerous for me. Rum and tequila. Yeah, I don't really mess with them because the next day it will not be a pretty sight. And Maria is dipping spoons in sugar and dipping them into the rum subsequently for each and every officer there. And she turns to Nikolai and goes, you would like some sugar in your rum too. And Nikolai mm, nods. Instead of mixing it with a spoon, Nikolai suggests, why not mixing it with your finger? It would taste all the sweeter. Ew, I don't want anyone dunking their digits in my coffee. Just as the teasing reaches its climax, the doctor pokes his head out of the next room and goes, uh, guys, I've been up the whole time and I do not like the way you're talking to my wife. I'm going to take her to side and we're going to have a conversation about it. And this causes all the soldiers to laugh well into the night and they're all sleeping in the tavern there on the floor askew. And Nikolai is trying to get to sleep, but every time he tries to, someone makes a remark and this starts everyone laughing again over the whole scenario. Very, very odd. I do think this is kind of the calm before the storm chapter that is chapter 14, where the war surprisingly starts. In the middle of the night, everyone's woken up. It's time to go to the front lines. Everyone up. We need to go. Nikolai has a new horse that he's obsessed with because the horse is clearly trained and ready for battle. It's calm. The eyes of a hunter. A lot of horse praise. If only Nikolai treated the woman in his life better than he treats his horse. Heck, I'd even think they'd take equal treatment at this point. So they're marching to the village of Ostrovna, and Nikolai and Elian are getting to talking. Nikolai is ready for some battle, he's been experienced, and he sees that Elian is kind of freaking out because he's a newbie, and that's what all people who are first acclimated to war do. Without seemingly going very far, because it's only been half a page and it's a very short chapter, Nikolai hears gunshots, and says, oh, the front lines must be here. Why, there's the French. And instead of gunshots filling him with dread and fear, he's like, oh, this sounds like the most beautiful music that I haven't heard in a long time. Since he's in a higher position in the military now, he can kind of sit back, but he does go towards the front lines and realizes that some of their Russian troops are being shot dead by some French soldiers, and yet again compares this warfare to music. This isn't a good comparison. I would not describe it as that. This is horrific. Chapter 15, Nikolai is in the midst of things now, and the fight is on as he runs forward to face some French dragoons. And this ain't your Final Fantasy dragoons with them high leaping all over the place. Now, Nikolai doesn't have the authority to issue an attack, but he charges forward on his horse... Strike while the iron is hot and all that, and the rest of the troops see Nikolai's brave charge forward and follow suit. Nikolai picks one French officer and chases after him, and this French officer is trying to get away, but then Nikolai's horse rams into this dude's horse, and the French officer gets all tangled up in the stirrups, and Nikolai is on the moment, reaches for his saber, his sword, and is about to plummet it into this French guy's chest when he realizes, oh my god, this is a person that I'm going to kill. Uh, yeah, Nikolai, that's kind of what you signed up for. And he looks at this French officer and says, This man is like a child who's got injured and needs his mother or grandmother or somebody to help him, and we're all this child, and I am he, and he is I. 
Luckily, there is a call for the French troops to surrender just in the general area, and Nikolai is spared having to do the deed of killing this French officer. When he does come back, he's lauded and praised for his bravery and says that if the sovereign does happen to find out about this, you will be handsomely rewarded. And Nikolai is thinking to himself more about like, my god, I almost killed that man, and am I going to get in trouble because I didn't have the authority to lead that charge? Over the next couple of days, Nikolai does receive a St. George's Cross, which is a high honor, but he's very much introspective towards himself, not speaking with anyone, drinking only on obligation, and clearly thinking about how war is meaningless and how he would be different if he had taken that life. Honestly, this is good for Nikolai because he was a young boy, but now he seems to be a bit more mature and realizes that death is final. We will see how he develops this new worldview now that he has a battalion of soldiers under his command. Chapter 16, let's see how Natasha's doing after that old suicide attempt. So Countess Rostov hears about her daughter's illness and the entire family goes from their house to rent a house in Moscow, so they're together. Count Rostov hires many, many different doctors to come to the house and see if they have some medicine for Natasha, and they don't really have any specific medicine for that time period. It's more based on the person's personality and what they're going through and their nuances. Natasha isn't eating, isn't sleeping, growing thin, and coughing a lot. But they do realize, and this is a bit forward-thinking of them, that having the family around Natasha and, you know, feeling welcomed and at home really does help her out. It cheers her up a bit and slowly but surely snaps her out of this funk. Countess Rostova and Sonia are starting to see eye to eye once again because Sonia is refusing to sleep to administer Natasha's medicine to her at the appropriate times. And Natasha, even though she's saying nothing will ever cure this hurt within me, sees that the family is kind of reconnecting together around her and she's happy for that. And with all this time, as winter goes into summer once more and the Rostovs refuse to go to the country house for the summer and stay with Natasha in Moscow... Natasha slowly gets better. I mean, another humanistic moment is that when we're in a funk and heartbreak and at the lowest point of our life, it does take time and people reaching out to us, even though we want them to go away. And we refuse to accept that we're ever going to get better. Time does heal all wounds, apparently. Chapter 17, Natasha is going through sort of a penance period where she's forbidding herself from experiencing any form of joy, be it balls, dances, comedy, acting, hanging out with friends. She's just closing herself off to all those things and honestly having a time of self-reflection. But she does say despite all that, she still has to live, and so she presses on. She doesn't want to be a burden to those around her, and she decides to go hang out with Pierre Bezikov more because he did show her that affection when he proposed to her a few chapters ago, and she sees that he can honestly make her laugh, he never brings up any problem sore areas with her, and it's just pleasant conversation all around. Now, in Natasha's mind, she didn't take the proposal so seriously, despite us readers and probably Pierre in the moment. She says Pierre only said that to her to make her feel better, and it worked, and she appreciates it. Natasha then turns towards religion. She starts attending church at least three times a day, and fasting, and praying, and Countess Rostova sees this as a good sign that she's returning to life once more. 
She's taking this church thing very seriously and working on her penance and waking up early, returning home later at night, and just thinking about herself and saying, maybe I'm making the right steps in order to start my life again. Then one day she returns home from communion, not having understood exactly what was being said in church, but she realizes that she does not feel as burdened by her, you know, her... I wouldn't call them misdeeds, but her actions in the past, and that she can go about living again. Very slow, very simple, very sweet rebuilding of Natasha's character. A nice arc she's gone on, and I appreciate it. I wouldn't call myself a good Catholic, but I am religious. Um, I don't go to church as often as I should, and I definitely oof, worry about my sins a lot more than other people. But, um, you know, when religion works, it works. It doesn't always work. Uh, what am I babbling on about? Chapter 18, the July heat is hitting Moscow, and there's one thing that's causing another sensation. It's the outbreak of war. War is on the horizon. Emperor Alexander has penned a manifesto, and there's only one man intelligent enough to read it to the Rostovs, and that is dear Pierre. He's going to come over and give a, a scripted performance of this new proclamation. I can picture the Rostovs just sitting in their house going, What does this mean? It's just scribbles on paper. Oh, it's the written word. The Rostovs arrive at church yet again, and Natasha is there, and she overhears a few conversations about people pointing out her relationship with Andre and Anatole and how it would have been so nice if it turned out, but she kind of blew it. She hears comments that she's still pretty, but a little bit thinner. Whatever happened to the wonderful girl we saw in her youth? Natasha doesn't take this to heart, and she is constantly thinking about praying and doing herself better through religion. As they start praying, we get this internal monologue that's very beautiful, that Natasha prays for the people in her life and prays for the people who have, you know, caused her life to go off the rails a little bit. She does pray for Anatole and the people that have wronged her, but she doesn't see it as that. It's mainly her responsibility, her life, so she thanks them in a way. And Countess Rostova is commenting on how when Natasha prays, she seems to be glowing and reconnecting to that innocence that she has lost. However, there's a curveball thrown by one of the deacons or the pastor or whatever you want to call the guy in charge. At the end of this normal ceremony of praying, he throws in a new one for the glory and success of our Russian army. May they destroy and kill the murderous French? That doesn't seem like it fits into this kumbaya, come here, wash me in the waters mentality of religion now, does it? But our girl Natasha, much more clever than one gives her credit for, sees through this and goes, why would God want us to pray for the murder of anyone? They may be enemies to our country, but they are humans at heart. God forgive them. She instead prays for everyone who might be uh, fooled or, you know, delusioned by this priest's prayer. And this only further cements why Natasha is such a great literary heroine. She's gone through so much. She's had her heart broken, her place in society ripped. And yet here she is, without any malice or ill intent in her heart, praying for other people. Natasha Rostov would definitely be part of the dream blunt rotation along with Pierre. Maybe Helene. Chapter 19 is a Pierre perspective chapter, and wouldn't you know it, as soon as he left Natasha's house and saw the great comet a-twinkling in the sky, he has had his heart full of love for Natasha ever since, but knows that it'll never come to be. Sad boy Pierre. 
and he admits to himself that all this vice, the gambling, the drinking, the partying, has been just shadows of his self. It's been masking his deeper pain, and when he spoke with Natasha, he saw a glimpse of how beautiful life could be. Then Pierre gets a little bit manic, and he's seeing signs of doom and everything, and talking to his Mason brothers, and he feels that there is going to be a huge catastrophe that's going to befall him and the rest of Russia if they don't act soon enough. And this isn't good for Pierre's mental health, because after talking to his Masonic brothers, he reads that in the letters of St. John detailing the apocalypse or the end of times, that there is a coded phrase that matches up with the words Le Empereur Napoleon, by calculating and setting his cabal and doing some mathematics on his abacus, he has concluded using numerology that that phrase has the exact same number as the mark of the beast, 666. And Pierre does this, writing out phrases and words. He even relies on his own name, and he goes, surely I must be marked for evil as well. And he puts out his name, it doesn't work, but then he misspells his name incorrectly in a major way, and then it fits, and he's like, ah, see, I knew it. I am the devil. You okay, Pierre? You hitting that wacky tobacco a little bit too hard? Or maybe you should hit it just a little, right? Calm down. It's fine. You're not going to bring about the end times. Pierre, before going to the Rostovs to read this proclamation that was in the previous chapter, stops and gets the mail and hears that Nikolai has been promoted and everyone in the spheres is doing well, especially Andre, who's got another promotion. And he is emotionally weighing, should I tell the Rostovs, even though they have that awkwardness between Natasha and him? Would they care? Maybe I should anyway. And all of this success, the stories of his friend's success, inspires Pierre to get a little bit lilting into, should I have joined the army? I would have loved to join the services. Maybe it's still a possibility for me. And Pierre, I do not know. You had a little luck in that duel with Dolokhov earlier in the novel. Let's not you know, try our luck again. His final reasons for not joining the army are as follows. The Masons promote pacifism, so no violence there. And since he has now revealed himself to be the mark of the beast, it would be a bad idea for him to go to war. It would only result in more evil being spread. Chapter 20, Pierre arrives at the Rostov's house, and oh my goodness, here's another reason why you can't go to war, Pierre, is because you're so fat you can't even climb up the stairs now. You're out of breath from three stairs. What makes you think you're gonna charge into the army? Tolstoy knows how to crack a boy up because he starts this chapter, Pierre had gotten so fat. How fat is he? <laughs> He's so fat when he sat on a dollar he ended up with a buck fifty. He's so fat Melville cited him as a muse. He's so fat, Thanos had a clap to get rid of him. Pierre's huffing and puffing up the stairs, and he hears beautiful music. Natasha is singing once more, and his heart is filled with joy. He creeps in, gazes at her, and she goes nonchalantly, I want to try singing again. And Pierre can only reply, beautiful, wonderful. The two get to talking about Nikolai and how he received the St. George Cross, and Pierre's like, well, Andre's doing very well too. And at this, Natasha goes, Pierre, I trust you as one of my closest friends. Do you think that Andre will ever truly forgive me? Pierre, in his mind, says that he would have no problem forgiving Natasha as he loves her so much, but he does say that Andre is one of the most magnanimous and kind men, so of course he will forgive her, definitely. This causes Natasha to cry tears of joy again. Petya comes running in, now 15 years old, and is saying that he's going to join the army now, and Pierre sees that there's no problem in that because they're going to need all the men they need now that Russia has retreated once more. 
Count Rostov, Countess Rostov, Sonia and the entire family come in, greet Pierre and say, where's the letter? Pierre has this whole moment where he's like, now where did I put that thing? Is it in my fat rolls here? And I'm not being fattest. I am also fat. It's just funny. It's like, you can find where you hid the Twinkies, though, but you can't find this manifesto? He's about to dip out and says, I must have left it at home, but Sonia's like, no, I found it in your hat in the hall. It was in the lining. Let's read it now. He goes, no, 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 we'll read it after dinner because I do love to eat. (laughs) We know. Dinner, it's brought up again that Pierre might join the army and he's flip-flopping between the two and after dinner, they get their best reader. Oh, it's not Pierre. It's Sonia. She does love to read, to read the proclamation aloud. This proclamation is very patriotic, and it just says, Russians, we have to band together to rout the enemy out of our country. And Pierre is on the verge of tears because he does love Russia with all his heart. And he goes, that's the spirit. This inspires Petya on the spot to say, I'm going to join. I'm going to enlist as well. Countess Rostov nearly has a heart attack. And Count Rostov goes, um, no, you're not, Petya. We already got enough people in the army. While this heated talk has been going on, Pierre and Natasha have been staring at each other and stealing glances at one another the entire time. Pierre doesn't know how to deal with these emotions, decides to go home early, and in that decision says he has to keep himself away from the Rostovs and Natasha from now on. He can't be involved in that and ruin Natasha's life further, and he feels unlovable. Natasha asks, why are you going? We barely talked, and you said you were going to stay. And Pierre wants to say, because I love you and I don't want to deal with those emotions right now, but he just makes up some phony excuse and bumbles his way off the, out of the room. Natasha wants a reason. Pierre kisses her hand and vows, I can't see them again. Very sad. Chapter 21, and kicking off this sad spiral, Petya goes off to his room to cry since he's been denied the opportunity to join the army and enlist. The next day, Emperor Alexander is going to be in Moscow and Petya gets it into his head that he's going to go and be the most avid 15-year-old fanboy you ever did see and that the generals around the emperor will say, this boy shows great Russian courage, he should enlist on the spot. I do not think this is going to happen and he shows up and of course the square is packed with people. He looks presentable at first but then he gets rustled and shoved and ribbed. To the point where it's almost like that Selena scene where she has to tell the crowd to back off, you're crushing the people at the front. It's not a pretty sight. And for a while there, I'm like, oh, is Petya gonna die by getting crushed in an emperor fervor? When the emperor does emerge, the crowd goes wild. They start screaming like, dear father, and crying tears just to gaze at him. Really has an effect over his people. Petya gets the wind knocked out of him and comes to with an old preacher over him. Just, this boy is being crushed. Can we let up a little bit, please? And no one seems to be listening. Petya's plans go bust. He says, I wasn't meant to deliver my message to the emperor in this way. And the rest of Emperor Alexander's day is just being followed by these throngs of people. He's just chilling his palatial estate, steps out with a biscuit in his mouth, greets them, and Petya is just as ravenous as before. It's very funny that he can't even identify the emperor because there's tears in his eyes and he can't make out the general forms of people. Petya returns home and demands to his family that if they do not help him enlist, he's going to run away and do it himself. And Count Rostov says, oh, goodness gracious, I'm going to go and try to get you a job where you won't get killed in the army. And he does so the next day. Mm, Thoughts and prayers for Petya. 
Chapter 22, we're inside the Slobotsky Palace with a lot of dignitaries and officials debating as they're wont to do. Pierre has squeezed himself into a size too small suit, and he's going to talk with his noble friends that are all dressed to the nines to debate today. Pierre is listening as this nobleman with a glassy baritone starts to speak. And as these things go, it slowly devolves into a shouting match with Pierre at the center because everyone's trying to find a reason or give an idea on how to raise an army quickly with the French at their heels. Pierre chimes in and doesn't find the exact French words and phrasing that would make him seem like a much more honorable debater and just calls a, even though I don't agree with this stranger here, and that already sets the tone of the debate askew. Pierre barely has any words out of his mouth before he's attacked by everyone in the general vicinity, according one Stefan, and this is the greatest last name in history, Stepanovich. And Stefan lives up to his surname and shuts Pierre the fuck up. Pierre is down on himself and can't find the words when Count Rostov, who's also there, takes Pierre aside and goes, It's alright, in these scenarios there's always a good person and a bad person when everyone starts screaming at one another. You just so happen to be the bad person. The whipping boy, if you would. Just a lot of crushing going on where these old people are almost crushing each other. We just had that mob... With Petya, and I think Tolstoy is just trying to show us how these Russians are getting all fired up, but at the same time talking in circles because war doesn't make any sense. And in our final chapter of the day, chapter 23, Emperor Alexander arrives and addresses the nobility. Emperor Alexander comes out and he says, Gentlemen, you have showed me the openness and the dependability of the Russian nobility. I didn't have my doubts before and I certainly don't have them now. This causes Count Rostov to openly weep that he's being praised by the sovereign emperor. Pierre is too far back in the room to even make out the general shape and what the emperor is clearly saying. The Emperor steps out once again and goes to talk with some merchants. He comes back ten minutes later and he's openly weeping. Everyone's crying and they're just like, Take my life and land, please! I'll do anything for you! And all of these nobles are donating men. They want to donate ten, a hundred, a thousand men in Pierre's case to help out the Russian cause. Does Pierre even know a thousand people? Count Rostov returns home and then has no questions about signing Petya up to the army because he, whenever he thinks of the emperor, he just starts crying. And on the impassioned note of Hail Emperor Alexander, this episode of Drink and Read has reached its conclusion. Of course, some shameless plugs. If you like my voice, my recap, or just my personality in general, please feel free to check out my other podcast. I have one Nightcaps at the Theater with my friends Matthew Cabrera and Mark Zebro Jr., where we get a little drizzy drunk and recap some movies. Currently on a hiatus, but there's enough in the vault to keep you entertained for a long while. And secondly, Anime Was Not a Mistake, co-hosted with my friend Daniel Ryan, where we talk about about anime and anime-adjacent movies. It would be unbecoming of me if I didn't mention to also remember to rate, review, subscribe, and listen to this podcast, Drink and Read, on wherever fine podcasts are purloined, but especially on Apple Podcasts because they want ratings and um, it helps in the algorithm if you just leave a five-star review and a sentence of positive feedback. I know it's asking for a lot, but I really, really appreciate it because I love to drink and read and we're keeping up a brisk pace that I want to continue.
Just pretend that I'm Emperor Alexander and you're Petya. I'll see you next week, dear readers, for Volume 3, Part 2, Chapters 1 through 11. Napoleon is inching closer and closer to Moscow, and old Count Bolkonsky is inching closer and closer to death. Which will get there first? Well, I won't spoil. As always, remember to drink and read responsibly. Prochier! Thank you for listening to Drink and Read. Hosting for this podcast brought to you by Anchor. This podcast can also be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, and more. If you have any thoughts or questions, or any beverage recommendations, please feel free to reach out to us on drinkandreadpod at Instagram. Support of this podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you.